You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. It was operator <laughs> error. Gosh, I love to blame the sound people, but I couldn't do it. Can't time. do it this time. I just love that song. I run to the Father, I fall into grace. Isn't that wonderful? I've been learning that song, and uh, I'm taking my guitar with me to Reno, Nevada, next month, and I'm going to sing that uh, at the conference. I didn't mention this in the first service, but while I was in Corpus Christi this week, I was invited to do a radio interview, and it turned into about a 45-minute interview. And a pastor from McAllen, Texas, which is about two mile, two hours from Corpus Christi, asked me if he if he was to organize a conference in McAllen. Uh, about teaching hospital church principles, would I come? And I said, absolutely, I would. And interestingly enough, my life changed for every Christian workbook. I'm rewriting it. It's 10 years old. I'm rewriting it, updating it, and it is right now being translated into Spanish. Mm -hmm. And after the first of the year, I'm going to be going to McAllen, Texas, where there are a lot of only Spanish-speaking churches. There are a lot of bilingual churches there, but there are many churches that are only Spanish-speaking. And that's one of the things that Spanish-speaking churches have had a difficulty in is getting good quality recovery material that is translated into Spanish. So I just love God's timing and the way He works things out. Take your Bibles and turn to the little book of Jude, all the way in the back of your New Testament. If you go to the book of Revelation, just back up a little bit. The book of Jude is only 25 verses long, this letter that Jude wrote to this group of Christians. And this morning, we're only in verses uh, 3 and 4. We're doing this very slowly, a verse or two at a time. And we are in this series that we've titled, Contentious Christianity, because in verse 2, Jude says that we are to contend for the faith. In other words, we are, be able, we are to be able to defend the faith and speak about the faith. And in verse 4, he tells us why we must be able to do that because he says there are those who have crept in, obviously into the church there, and are distorting the faith. So he says we must be able to contend for the faith because there are those that want to distort the faith. And it's interesting, this was written during the first century of the church, just a few decades after Jesus had risen uh, to the right hand of the Father, and already the faith of Christianity was being distorted with false teaching and false doctrine. And there have always been those who did that, came in and began to distort the truth of God. In fact, it is the enemy's most effective tactic against our faith. You know, when, when the church is persecuted, historically, the gospel explodes and the church multiplies. So persecution has never been effective to stop the church. But what has been effective at times is when false doctrine came into the body of Christ and began to begin to disseminate, it always has those kinds of debilitating results. So Jude says there are obviously those who have crept into your midst, and so you must be able to defend the, the faith. I, I wrote in my Life Change for Every Christian Workbook that the enemy's only tool against us is lies. He's a liar, Jesus said. He's been a liar from the beginning. In fact, he's the father of lies. And, and so he comes in with his lies. And, and Jesus said he comes in as a wolf in sheep's clothing deceptively in order to do his cancerous work from the inside. So we really don't, we really don't have a problem with outside opposition to the faith. But where the faith gets destroyed, where the faith has problems, is when individuals come from the inside and begin to teach and preach false doctrine. In fact, Jesus told us it was going to happen before Jesus was even crucified. In Matthew 24, verse 11, he warned his followers, he said, listen, many false prophets are going to arise, and they're going to lead many people astray. So Jesus said, beware of them. And so what Jesus was referring to is what Jude is referring to, which is attacks on the true faith that come from the inside. And and it's interesting. I wonder how many of you would know what Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Dartmouth, William and Mary, Brown, and Princeton University have in common. They will cripple you with debt. They will cripple you with debt. That is one thing they have in common. 
they're highly academic. They're considered Ivy League schools, okay? It's very difficult to get in those schools. But there's another key factor that all of those world-famous universities have in common. Here it is. They were all founded for the primary purpose of promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world. They were all founded for the purpose of promoting the Christian faith. That's right. Look it up. Historically, you will find that that's true. But what has happened is that today they are all bastions of secular humanism. That is actually, they're actually hostile to the true Christian faith. Now, that, isn't that interesting? They were founded for the singular purpose of promoting the Christian faith, of preaching the gospel, of training ministers and, and young people to go out into the world and be adherents of the gospel faith. But now, centuries later, they are actually hostile to the gospel faith. That didn't happen overnight. Nope. It was over a slow process of creeping, creeping in. It's a, to borrow Chuck Youngman's work, how, do, how does the, the false doctrine creep into the church? Practice, practice, practice. practice. That's right. Yeah, just a little bit of time and people start practice, practice, yeah. practice. Here's an, an illustration of what I've just said to you. At Harvard University, on the cornerstone of Harvard University, which was founded, quite frankly, about 150 years before the American Revolution in the 1600s, this is what the cornerstone of Harvard says. After God had carried us safe to New England, because these were all Brits who had come, English people who had come to the colonies, after God had carried us safe to New England and we had builded our houses, I like that, <laughs> had builded our houses. They apparently didn't go to Harvard. <laughs> they probably didn't go to Harvard, that's right. That was good English back then. Had builded our houses, provided necess necessities for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship, in other words, built churches, and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Harvard was founded for the purpose that when this current group of ministers are dead, that there will always be a generation of young preachers of the gospel who have been equipped in the scripture to go and preach the gospel. That is on the cornerstone of Harvard University, who today is hostile to the Christian faith. In the 1643 handbook for students, they laid down three very key rules for every student at Harvard University. It said, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life. In other words, the purpose of your life, Harvard student, and of your studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which mm. is eternal. Mm. That's the number one thing for students to Harvard. Our goal, number two, is seeking the Lord. For the Lord gives wisdom, and everyone shall seriously, by prayer in secret, seek the wisdom from God. Three, everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the Scriptures twice a day that they may be ready to give an account of their proficiency therein, both in theoretical observation of language and logic and in practical and spiritual truths. That is the founding of Harvard University. When Princeton was founded, it was mandatory that everyone on the teaching faculty could give a personal testimony of personal faith in Jesus Christ. You couldn't teach at Princeton without giving a personal testimony of a personal conversion by faith in Jesus Christ. Mm. When Brown University was founded, it was required that 22 of the 29 trustees must be Baptists. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Jury's still out. But Brown was basically founded as a Baptist university, and today it is hostile to the faith. Do I need to say any more? Today, every one of them that were founded to be proponents of the Christian faith are anti-Christian. That happened over the course of centuries. It didn't happen overnight. As individuals crept in and as slowly the distortion of what the true Christian faith is became a part of the ideology of that university. Now, that's the same thing that Jude is saying to these Christians. He's saying, well, you got to watch out, folks, because he says there are some who have crept in who are distorting the faith. And so he says, you must contend for the faith lest they are able to achieve their nefarious purpose. Mm. The same thing that's happened with all the Ivy League universities, the same thing that was happening in this place where Jude is writing has happened with the Christian denominations in America. 
There, and I will not name them, but there are several Christian denominations that if you looked 100 years ago, they were great proponents of preaching and teaching the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching the Word of God. And today, they, virtually, they deny virtually all of the major doctrines of the Christian faith. It didn't happen overnight. It happened slowly over the course of time. There are churches in our city that at one time, if you look back in their history, they were great centers for teaching and preaching the truth of the Word of God, and now their preachers stand up every Sunday and don't even refer to the Bible, but they tell nice, sweet, little humanistic stories about how Christians are supposed to be do-gooders and go out there in the world and be nice people. They just have denied the faith. <laughs> Those are the people I made fun of in high school. Yeah, exactly. And uh, probably contributed a great deal to your, uh, your agnostic uh, philosophy. Absolutely. So here's the question. What can we do? What is Jude telling these Christians that they should do in order to contend for the faith? What should we do in order to be able to be stalwarts in the true faith of Jesus Christ and not over the course of time allow the watering down of God's truth to happen in the church and in our lives? Well, first of all, I want to say to you, if you're going to contend for the faith, you have to be able to define the faith. If you can't define what the true Christian faith is, you can't defend the faith. Now, that word, the faith, or those two words that Jude uses are actually a technical term that are used throughout the New Testament, not talking about faith that you have, but the faith being that core doctrinal set of truths that defines what the Christian faith is as apart from any other religion or whatever it is. It is the true teaching of Christianity that forms the core doctrines, and it is used that way all through the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He says, take a look at what you believe. Are you really in the faith? In Ephesians 4, verse 13, he speaks about that a time when we should at all attain the unity of the faith. Not just unity for unity's sake, but unity in the faith. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, Paul speaks to the Philippian church about their progress and their joy in the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul speaks to young Timothy as his child in the faith because Paul had mentored young Timothy up in the faith, and now Timothy was a pastor of the church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 21, Paul speaks to those who have gone astray from the faith, just like Jude warns that there are those who are distorting the faith. In Jude chapter 3, so he says... We should contend earnestly for the faith. But you see, here, here's the problem, folks. We have to, first of all, build to define what the faith is before we can ever contend for the faith. And this idea also clearly uh, counters the statement that I can't tell you how many times I've heard in 40 years of ministry over and over and over, something like this. It doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you believe something. Seriously. Well, I want to tell you, the Scripture says it does matter what you believe because what you believe determines whether you're in the faith or not. People say today all the time, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to immediately, I'm going to go, really? What Jesus do you believe in? And when they start telling me about the Jesus they believe in, I go, well, that's not the Jesus of Christianity. That's not the Jesus that died on the cross for sin and raised on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming again. I don't know who that Jesus is, but he's not the Jesus of the New Testament. Nope. And so a lot of times people say, well, I believe in Jesus, and Christians just say, well, see, he's a Christian. Well, you better figure out what Jesus he believes in because oftentimes that's not the Jesus of our faith. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul says, There is one body, the body of Christ. There is one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Just as you were also called in one hope, there's only one hope for salvation of your calling. There is one Lord, and there is one faith. There are not many faiths. There are not many ways into eternity. Jesus said, I am the way 
not a way. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So are you getting this? Okay, are you with me here? So Jude is saying, well, contend for the faith. Well, if we're going to do that, then we better, first of all, understand what the faith is. What are the core necessities of the faith that you have to embrace in order to be in the faith? I want to give you seven of them very quickly. I don't have time to go into the teaching. I just want to mention them and, and mention Scripture very quickly. But these are important, okay? And, and if, you would, if you would understand these seven, if you would study these seven core doctrines of the faith, you would be able to define the faith. The first one is the divine inspiration of Scripture. It's a must. If you do not believe that God inspired the writing of the Scripture, then you will have the freedom then to pick or choose what you want to accept in the Scripture and what you don't. And that's what liberal churches do. They say, well, I know the Bible says this, but that's not really true. It's an old book. It's an old book, and it's really, this is what, you know, this is what, really what we believe. Well, you've denied the faith because our entire faith is built upon the foundation is the Word of God trustworthy because it's where we receive the doctrines of the faith. So if you start off by denying that, all oh, it's just a human book, that God didn't inspire this thing, well, then you've already denied the faith before you get started. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Mm. If you say, well, I don't believe that, you've already denied the faith. Second, the deity of Christ. Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus was God in the flesh. We refer to that theologically as the incarnation, when the creator God himself came and wrapped himself in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. You want to know, Jesus said, you want to know what the Father looks like? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, that's pretty clear terminology right there. But again, people say, well, Jesus really wasn't God in the flesh. He was a great prophet. He was a good man, came to teach us to be nice people, but he really wasn't God in the flesh. Well, you've denied the faith. Third is the virgin birth. If you deny the virgin birth of Jesus, you've denied the faith. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, quoting the Old Testament about the birth of the Messiah that was to come. Matthew says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You see, the reality is if Jesus was not born without a human father, then he inherited a sin nature just like you and I did because all after Adam who have a human father have inherited that nature. And so if you say, well, Jesus had, Joseph really was Jesus' human father, well, you've denied the faith because the virgin birth of Jesus is what gave Christ the opportunity to be the second Adam, the last Adam. The first Adam was, was created without sin nature, chose to sin. The second Adam, Jesus, was born without a sin neighbor and chose to perfectly obey the Father. You get that? It was perfectly stated. Perfectly stated. Thank perfectly you so much. Stated. There's a whole lot more to that. But fourth, it's a substitutionary death on the cross. That Jesus died on the cross for us. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The liberal mindset of that is say, oh, that's so gruesome. That's so, oh, that's so medieval that God would allow Jesus, his son, to die for us. And they laugh at that th terminology. Well, if you do, you've denied the faith because it is the substitutionary death of Christ that gives us the opportunity of eternity. Mm. Third, fifth, the re physical resurrection. Romans 8, 11, But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in ye, you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also raise you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, If Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is hopeless. Was that a little King James that just snuck out on you? King Jimmy, yeah. Well, I've memorized it so many. Good news for the 17th century man is what I call that. Oh. So there's the fifth, the physical resurrection, the second coming of Christ. When Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, an angel appeared to those that stand there like that. Did you see that? And they're going, wow. How was that? And they can say it backwards. Wow. Just like that. Yeah. Because they go, whoa. You know, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, and the angel says, well, what are you men of Galilee? Why do you stand looking into the heaven, dribbling out your lips? 
This Jesus, he didn't say that, but this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. He's coming again. So Juan says, well, Jesus is not really coming again. He just taught us to be nice people, and we're all going to heaven, and he doesn't have to come. Well, you right. denied the faith. Right. Seven, salvation by grace through faith. Are you gonna have, yeah, you're going to have time. Oh, I'm good. No, yeah. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So when someone comes along and says, well, you need to do this and this and this and this, and then you can present yourself acceptable to God, they have denied the faith. For we cannot be saved by works. The Scripture is very clear. We are saved by the grace of God and only the grace of God. No one can deserve salvation. You can't be good enough for God to say, okay, you're good enough to get in because none of us are. Only Jesus Christ is good enough. And when he laid his life down as a substitutionary sacrifice, when we place our trust in him, then the blood of Christ covers us, and that is the only way. So all of this stuff about, well, okay, to be a Christian, you got to do this, 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 and this, that's works theology. That is a denial of the faith. Are you with me? They're, so, like, they're like, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, 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 I hope so. Like, like the, he loves me, he, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. You know, what a lousy way to live. So, here we are, all of these things, we're constantly being surrounded with attacks upon the faith. People denying the virgin birth, people denying the substitutionary sacrifice, people denying the physical resurrection or the literal second coming of Christ. They are all denials of the faith. Do you get that? You cannot be a Christ follower and deny the essence of the faith because then that which you believe in is not the faith. It's not the Christian faith. It is very narrow. Jesus said, wow, narrow is the way to lead to salvation if you find it, but wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many are on that path. It is very important what Jude wrote. To these Christians, listen, this stuff is creeping into your midst, and you've got to stop it now. Stop it in its tracks. Contend for the faith. So when someone says, well, I know the Bible says, but they're about to deny the faith. When someone says, I know people talk about the virgin birth of Jesus, but, but. they're about to deny the faith. You can just go on. They just butt the faith all the way around until like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and Brown, they butted the faith right off of the campus. And churches that butt the faith right off the campus. So, there are two ways of denying the faith. You can add to the faith, and that's a denial of the faith. That's what legalism does. Legalism says, okay, now to really be a Christian, you got to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. That's legalism. You're adding to the faith of what Scripture doesn't say. That's a denial of the faith. But on the other side, you can, you can deny the faith by subtracting from the faith. When someone says, well, I know the Bible says that, but I don't really believe that. Well, that's taking away from the faith. That is a denial of the faith. That's called liberalism. So, Legalism and liberalism are both expressions of the denial of the true faith. Derek gave me this quote this last week from a book he's reading in a doctoral seminar that I think says it very well. Fundamentalism, which he means by that, he means legalism, often fails to distinguish between saying no to an inadequate confession of the deity of Christ and saying no to the wrong kind of movie. <laughs> You know, the legalistic things, well, if you see that movie, that's just sin, okay? Well, and that by their definition, that's sin. So if you see that movie, that's sin for you. That's legalism. And, and, and legalism, he says, has a hard time determining the difference with somebody that can't adequately speak about the deity of Christ, but it's more important that you don't go see that movie. <laughs> oh, man. That's a denial of faith. It's so bad. Liberal revisionism, he says, on the other hand, is an attempt to translate the Christian faith in order to connect with culture, has often wound up revising the Christian faith instead of translating it. In other words, trying to water down the truth of God's Word in order to make it more palpable to people, and in the process that, they have denied the faith. So you deny the faith by legalism, by adding to the faith, you can deny the faith by liberal revisionism, which is taking away the heart and soul of the faith. Mm. But you've got to define it first. 
you got to define the faith. Second of all, we should be totally devoted to the faith. And I want to point out before we begin this, um, because I, I do want to talk with you this morning pretty at length. This is going to be the, the heart of, of my part here of what it means to be devoted to the faith. But before I do that, I, I want to just clarify something, because I think this is a very important aspect that we often get confused about, which is that the goal of the Christian life, the mission of the Christian life, is not to define the faith. The goal is to be devoted to the faith. Mm -hmm. That's the big idea. We're not to be going around more and more clearly able to define the faith to everyone we meet. We're supposed to be devoted to it. The catch is, and this is a truth, you cannot be devoted to a faith that you cannot define. (laughs) So that's why James just said everything he just said, because it is critical, it is absolutely important for you to be able to define something that you are going to be devoted to. You cannot live a life of faith without being able to do that. What is faith? Taking God at His Word. How can you take God at His Word if you cannot define His Word? You can't do it. It's, it's, it's not even logical. It doesn't make any sense. It's why we're so adamant. It's why we have so many things in place at City on a Hill to teach you and equip you that you would better be able to define the very faith that you are to be living after. But we get this idea, I think, sometimes in the particularly American church, that's just the goal just stops there. That you should just be able to define the faith better and better. So you get a Bible, a good study Bible, a good commentary. <laughs> maybe you start going to Bible study classes. Maybe you start listening to sermons online. And if you're not careful, the whole focus of your life becomes, how can I define this stuff? And you miss the mark. And you're you not supposed to be doing that. Become a Pharisee. Exactly. The, the Bible assumes that you will be able to define the faith. There is an assumption that you will be. It's a prerequisite to being devoted to the faith. I, I said this first service, but uh, you know, James and I both, between the, the both of us, have several years of, of training in Greek. And uh, I remember, he's, he's talked about this experience as well, and it was an identical experience to mine, that when I started Greek in seminary, I took it with a guy named Dr. John Taylor, who's the hardest professor of Greek at Southwestern. That's why I signed up with him, because I really wanted to learn it. And uh, the first day of class, he told us, you know, for the first month or two, we're not even going to learn Greek. I'm going to teach you English. (laughs) And we were kind of like, what? And and, and he made the point that you can't talk about Greek participles. You can't talk about tense and mood and voice if you don't understand basic grammatical function. In your own language. In your own language. You can't translate. Yeah. And so we spent the first two months of Greek learning English. It was a prerequisite to learning Greek. All you English teachers that taught English, you understand what we're saying. The kids get out of your class and you go, I hope they got something out of it. Most of us Got Didn't. to college and say, T- what's a participle? Yeah. yeah. Duh, I don't know. It's, so it's, if you're going to translate a Greek participle, you better understand what ha- one is in English. Because you won't be able to translate it otherwise. So it's a prerequisite. You've got to be able to define it before you can ever be devoted. Now the question becomes, why be devoted to the faith, right? Apart from the fact that the Bible commands us to, which that in and of itself should be enough, uh, it's what all of the New Testament writers virtually were concerned about. Uh, Jude desired very much to talk about and encourage and speak on the faith. He says in verse 3, he was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. And, and this reflects so much of the heart of the New Testament. Paul and Peter, so much of their goal was just simply to talk about, to encourage the churches and individual believers to be more and more devoted to the faith that they were bound to. The problem is, for Jude, <laughs> is that in order to do that, he also has to deal with the false the false doctrine that had crept in, the false teachers that had crept in. And, and there's a reason why the authors of the New Testament continually push us and encourage us to be devoted to the faith. It does something when we are devoted. Number one, it ignites us. And I can't think of a, a better example of being ignited in the faith than the Apostle Paul. Paul was, uh, uh, in all accounts, a terrorist <laughs> to Christians. Uh, he had just murdered Stephen. He was on his way to another place called Damascus on a road to do more murdering of Christians. I've used this example before. I think it's a helpful one just to kind of frame it in our own context. But if you can, if you can think for a moment about how you feel towards someone like Osama bin Laden, that, that kind of like, ugh, right, angst that you get, this is Paul in an ancient context, mm-hmm. right? He is a terrorist towards the Christian faith. He is not the guy that you form prayer circles around and go and evangelize to. <laughs> he is the guy that when you're in church and someone says, 
Paul's in town, you go, well, that about wraps it up, folks. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Head for the hills. He was called Saul at the time. He was called Saul at the time. Yeah. And, and so this is not the guy that you want to be around or, or take any chances. In fact, even after he comes to faith, people are like, are you, Lord, are you sure about this? Yeah. This, this dude, guy? This is a bad dude. And, 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 but the reality is when he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, he's ignited. And the whole trajectory of his life turns into disciple-making and church planting and carrying the gospel into every place that he is able to go. And, and the book of Acts actually chronicles that moment from Damascus all the way through the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, the last two verses, Paul is finally in Rome at this point. So he's been on three missionary journeys. He's been half beaten and half killed several times, bless you. And he is brought into Rome. This is how the book of Acts ends. It says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's mm. all Paul wanted to do. Even in prison. Even in prison. Now let me ask you, is talking about Jesus with other people important to you? I want you to tell us what happened on the Damascus Road. What happened to Paul? He was blinded by the light. <laughs> I just can't help it. You know, every time I talk about that story, it's, it's just, it's right there. You know, it's the underhanded softball. You know, he just, did that just off the cuff in the first service, and he was going to skip over. And I go, no, that's too good. Yeah. To yeah. That's, that was what he was so excited about all week about preaching this message. Just blinded by the light. He's blinded by the light. He was, truly. Uh, blinded if you haven't, by the light. If you don't know the story, read it. Uh, Acts, what is it, chapter 7. So, Paul, all he wants to do is talk. The question is, do you? How important is this? How ignited are you for the faith? Are you compelled to share your faith or are you complacent in, in sharing your faith? It should ignite us. Secondly, it unites us. Despite our diversity, the faith really brings us together. I mean, look around the room for a minute. This is one of the most incredible miracles of, of the gospel. There is no other context. That this bunch of misfit, misfits would be together. Right. There's no other context where we would all be in the same room together. I mean, seriously, i got to tell this story. I told the first Please. thing. i got to yes. tell this story. Okay, so I was in Corpus this week, and I used to wear, you know, black jeans a lot when I would teach somewhere, <laughs> and uh, they're, they're dressing up for me, you know. And, but all my black jeans are all faded. So I was down there at the hotel, and I'm thinking, I need to buy me a pair of black jeans. And there was a Walmart close by. So I go to Walmart, and I got these jeans for 10 bucks. Woo! And they're just as good as those $40 black ones that I had before. And some of you, if you knew I shopped at Walmart, you wouldn't fellowship with me. <laughs> exactly. And others of you would say, bless you, brother. Hey, if I can save 20 bucks, I'm going to go anywhere. That's okay? right. That's we right. are a diverse group of people. We're a diverse group of people. That's right. Absolutely. We take shots at Harvard. We shop at Walmart. I got these there what too. Can we say? That's right. What can we I say? I got a world-class education, and I wear $10 Walmart jeans. That is the way to do it right there. This is the diversity of the church. And, and, but here's the reality, that despite our differences, despite our diversity, we are unified. We're united by the faith. There mm. are things that we, that we lock arms on, and we go to war with together mm -hmm. to preserve. And we see this pattern of, of defining the faith being ignited by it and united by it all together in several places in the New Testament. There's uh, Ephesians chapter 4, James read part of it a moment ago in verse 12, but verses 11 through 13, Paul says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, that's us, all right, that's the, the teaching arm of the church, to equip the saints, that's y'all, you are the saints, for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ, that's igniting you, so we teach the scriptures to build you up, to define the faith for you, that you would go out and be ignited by it. And then look at verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. There's the faith. The not unity. Unity of faith, but unity of, of the, the faith. faith. This is God's design for the church, that we teach you in the word to define it, and that we instruct you in the word, that you would be ignited and unified by it. We see it again, the same pattern in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 44. This is the early church. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That's the defining the faith. This is laying out what the faith is. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. They were ignited by it. And then look at verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were united. Hmm. You know, I've been thinking a lot <clears throat> this week 
about why Christians are not more ignited and united by the faith. It's something that we're called to be. It's something that I think should be happening organically if, if everything else is going the way it should be. And, and, it, and it just doesn't happen very often in, in American Christianity. Why are we not more ignited and united? And, and the best answer that I can give, I think it's a complicated question, but the best simple answer I can give you is that I think churches have done historically a very bad job of contextualizing the faith for their own unique calling in their community and then explaining it to the people and how to be devoted to it. In other words, I think a lot of pastors, um, they, they take these sort of big lofty theological ideas like, well, we're going to be devoted to the gospel. Well, that's great, but what does that mean <laughs> on the east side of Fort Worth? Yeah. How does the gospel play itself out here, and is that different than how it plays itself out in Frisco or, or in Sudan, right? It's same gospel, same definition of the faith, but how is it being contextualized, and how are people being devoted to it in that context? And I, I, frankly, I think a lot of pastors can't really answer that question. I don't think they really think about it. And so here's what happens. The clarion call of the church in America becomes about growth for the sake of growth. Let's all just look successful. Let's just be successful. Let's grow this thing. I mean, just be honest for a minute. Think about the average church attender in the West. Expectations that are waged upon you are, are pretty much this. Go serve so that we can keep the church growth machine moving, so that we can keep on keeping on. And typically, the way it works is that Pastors have these ideas, they implement their ideas, they recruit volunteers to make these ideas come to life, and a lot of the times, if we're just being honest, and I'm as guilty as anyone else about it, sometimes they're just bad ideas. <laughs> and, and so there's all this work put into recruiting people, personnel, and, and driving people to go and do all this stuff, and it's just a crappy idea. It may be relevant, it may be fun, but it's void, it's hollow of anything lasting for the sake of eternity. And so I want to keep coming back as often as I can <clears throat> to the mission and the vision of City on a Hill. And what happens is because the key goal, if it's not, even if it's not stated, is numbers. Yes. We water down the faith to keep from offending people. Yes. Yeah, because we want as many people in here and, as possible. Yeah, and so we don't want to be controversial. Defining the faith takes a back seat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Defi really defining the faith and holding that fast yes. becomes, takes a back seat because we want big Everyone. numbers. Everyone. Yeah, and the reality comes. is Jesus didn't call us to big numbers. Jesus called us to a unity of the faith. That's right. And if the faith offends you, so be it. Yes, it is a stumbling block, Paul says. I, I want to keep coming back to the mission and vision. Several weeks ago, we had a, a conference here on Friday night, Saturday morning called Taking Shape. And <clears throat> I, I said a lot of things about things I've learned over the last 18 months. And if you didn't get to hear that, it's on our YouTube channel now. You can go watch it or, or not. I'll never know. Um, <clears throat> One of the big changes that I talked about that night, though, was a change to the vision statement here at City on a Hill. And, uh, and, and, and I, again, don't have time to talk about how it all unfolded, but, but long story short, a former elder uh, who is still a faithful server here came and began a discussion, and, and it unfolded in the elder body, and, and we began really praying about and talking about and, and finally decided to make some changes. The, the previous vision statement read like this, making the church a safe place for people to let go of their secrets and providing a safe process for people to grow in emotional and spiritual maturity in Christ. And, and I agree wholeheartedly with that. There's never been a question about whether or not that is a good statement. The, the problem that was brought up is that it's just not complete about yeah. who we really are here at City on a Hill. And if you've been around for our, uh, any amount of time, you've heard uh, either James or I talk about the threefold approach to sanctification. Sanctification, by the way, is just a word that means becoming more like Jesus. And, and we talk about it with regard to kind of like a three-legged stool, right? That three-legged stools are functional, they're sturdy, only if all three legs are intact, if you take away one of the legs, it becomes just a very weird piece of art, right? There's, there's no function beyond that. Don't sit on it. Don't sit on it. One of the legs represents the head, the head component or the knowing component of the faith. In other words, what we believe is that in order to become more like Jesus, there are some things God wants you to know. And we learn those things through what? Scripture, right. the Word of God, <clears throat> inspired, inerrant, infallible from God himself, one of the big defining factors of our faith. The second leg is the hands, the, the doing component. In other words, we believe that in order to become more like Jesus, there are not only things you need to know, but there are things that God wants you to do. And, and we, we kind of uh, encapsulate this on the one another's of Scripture, to love one another, serve one another, you know, bear one another's burdens, build one another up, encourage one another, so on and so forth. And, and generally, <clears throat> 
When we talk about the sanctification process, most churches will stop at the head and the hands. That's where it ends. If you'll just know more about Jesus and do more for Jesus, Jesus is going to make you happy and successful. Build you a big house. Things are going to be great. Mercedes in the garage. Absolutely. And what we, what we know to be true is that there is a third leg of the stool, and that is the heart component, the being component. And this is the one that is most often neglected, and it is the one that will trump the other two every opportunity it gets. Because the reality is, as a Christian, you can know a lot about Jesus, you can do a lot for Jesus, and if you have not dealt with those inner things, people who have hurt you, harmed you, trauma, whatever the case may be, that has caused you any kind of negativity or disruption in your relationships with other people and also God, it will sabotage your faith every single time. And, and you know it's true. We've seen it all the time with megachurch pastors, guys who ascend to the top. Is it, they, they, they get to the very top, the pinnacle of their careers, and then what ends up happening? They fall because of sexual immorality or or adultery, or, or whatever the case may be. And the question becomes, why? Those would be the same. They are the same. Well, yeah. sometimes. Sometimes it's financial things. Sometimes it's financial things. Sometimes it's, it's abuse, mm-hmm. just, just spiritual abuse. There's a whole podcast right now, actually, uh, about a former church with regard to spiritual abuse. Why? Why does that happen? Is it because those pastors didn't know enough about the Bible? No. Is it because they weren't doing enough things? No. It's because somewhere down inside of them, there was something that happened that caused them to go another way, and because they were never honest with it, uh, with anyone else about it, and they kept it secret, it began poisoning them until it finally worked itself out into whatever sin brought them down. Brokenness left unchecked sabotages 10 out of 10 times. 10 out of 10 do not recommend. It is not a good thing. The heart component is so important, and it's super clear in our vision statement. We desire to be a safe place. We want to give you a safe process. We believe that the church should be the safest place in the world for you to come and let go of all the things that you would never dream of sharing with anyone else because of shame and guilt and and whatever else in your life. But it should not ever be a safe place to spout false doctrine. No. And that's what Jude is saying, what Paul says. Yes, safety here, but the faith must be defended. It must be intact. There's never been a question about our conviction with regard to this aspect of the church. It just, the vision statement wasn't totally complete. So here's the new one. I want to give it to you uh, for those of you who weren't on Friday night. It reads this way. Becoming a safe place for people to let go of their secrets, providing a safe process for people to grow in emotional and spiritual maturity in Christ, developing disciples in the truth of God's word, loving one another as a witness to the world. That's complete. That's the head, the hands, and the heart. That captures what we do. And that brings up another good point, which is this is really not a vision statement. It's a mission statement. This is really the mission of City on a Hill, to be a safe place, to provide a safe process, to develop disciples, to love one another as a witness to the world. So that begs the question, some of you are thinking, well, if that's the mission statement, what's the vision statement? And here it is. It's very succinct. It's very small, and I think it captures who we are. We're all about the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. You can all remember that. That's simple. That's simple. We're all about the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. When people ask you, what's your church like? What's, your, what's City on a Hill like? I've been really curious. I've been thinking about coming. I, I, I told them Friday night at this conference, I hope you will not tell them about the preaching. Even though it's halfway decent. Even though it's halfway decent. Yeah. No, I think James and I are, are very above average communicators. I just think there are about a thousand above average communicators in DFW alone. That's right. I, don't tell them about our worship. Don't tell them about our student ministry, our kids' Although ministry. Although it's pretty good. Although it's great. <laughs> I believe in all the things we do here. But there's always a bigger fish out there. And that's not the things that make us who we are. What makes us unique is our commitment to the help, hope, and healing of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the vision. That's the DNA. That's the thing that should ignite you and send you on the mission of God. The vision statement ignites us. It excites us. It makes us want to tell other people. And, and, And frankly, the mission statement is the thing that should unite us. We will remain united on these things. It will tell you on the things that that we agree on. We will be insistent that church should be the safest place for you to share your secrets. We will be insistent that we have very high theological standards here. Why? Because we believe in developing disciples in the truth of God's word. It's a part of our mission. It's part of the mission of the church. We will be unashamed of radically loving one another. Why? Because it's a part of our mission here. This is how we are devoted to the faith. We, we, We tell you all the time, you need to be devoted. You need to be devoted. You need to be devoted. You need to be ignited. You need to be united. How? How do you do that here in this context? Through the mission of the church. Mm. This is the thing that sends us. 
that empowers us and sends us to go and be the city on a hill that cannot easily be hidden, as Matthew 5.14 says. And it's really interesting. Over the 37 years since we started the church, this is the third iteration yes. of the vision statement. Yes. Vision should not be stagnant. No. Because as you grow in an understanding of that vision, the wording changes. We, this is the third iteration, which is very healthy because yes. we're reevaluating really what is the vision and how has it expanded. We need to include that. And how is the mission now? And so I was really excited when Derek started talking to me about this. And I said, hey, amen, you got my support on it. It's, I, I believe in that. It's very, very, very helpful. And, and here's the thing. It should define the way that you serve. I'm not saying don't serve. I'm not saying that serving is not important. Serving is very important. We're commanded to do it in the Bible. But if the objective of serving is just to show up to your station, then you've missed it. Mm-hmm. If the objective, if you're on the host team and the objective of your, your service there is just to fill that spot and say hi to people, you've missed it. Use that opportunity. Let the vision of this church infiltrate the way you do that job so that when you greet people, you're thinking to yourself, how can I communicate the help, hope, and healing of Jesus to that Mm -hmm. person and that person and that person and that person? It's like Oprah. You get help, hope, and healing. You get help, hope, and healing. You get help, right? (laughs) That was not in the notes. (laughs) I know it wasn't. You didn't do that in the first service. That was not in the notes. I'm moving away from you. We should, here. we should be devoted <laughs> to a faith that we can define. And last but not least, we'll end here. This is a quick wrap-up. We should be willing to defend that faith. We should be willing to defend that faith, not if, but when it comes under attack. Let me give you two quick reasons for why we do not defend the faith, why Christians typically do not defend the faith. They're mind-blowing. They're revolutionary. They're going <laughs> to rock your world. Here they are. Number one... <clears throat> They can't define the faith. And number two, can you guess? They aren't devoted to the faith. You will not defend a faith that you cannot define. James said it several times. I will say it again. You cannot defend a faith that you cannot define. What I find, honestly, is is more than Christians not being willing to defend the faith because of a lack of being able to define it. Most of the time, Christians are not even under... They're not even aware when the faith is under attack. (laughs) They have such a lack of an understanding of being able to define the faith that when the faith comes under attack, they're oblivious to it. Like, why is everyone fighting? (laughs) And then when someone does defend the faith with that individual that is attacking the faith... You're being hostile. You're being hostile. Right. You're you're destroying the unity. No, unity... Has been destroyed. Has already been destroyed. Unity has got to be in the core of the faith, and any other kind of unity is a reasonable facsimile thereof. Yeah. It's a facade. So we are to have unity, but unity in the faith. And our Jude wouldn't have written what he wrote. No. You better get these folks straightened out because it's going to infect. Well, and the fact remains is it's a practice we see happening in the Bible I mean, think about Paul again for a moment, the man ignited and united by the faith, and the first time he sees Brother Peter, a fellow apostle, a fellow apostle, the one that that walked alongside Jesus more than anyone else. Being a hypocrite. He begins to be a hypocrite, and what does Paul say? I contended with him to his face publicly. That's in the book of Galatians. Yeah, we have to be willing to defend, not to disrupt unity. When there is bad doctrine, unity is gone. We have no unity now. Unity is built upon the faith, a sound definition of it. Man, it's been two weeks in. How much fun are we having yet? <laughs> Contentious Christianity. We've, we've taken shots at Harvard. We buy our pants at Walmart. <laughs> we, we do Oprah impressions. This has been the most outrageous series so far, and I hope that you will oh. still... It's going to get crazier, too. It's going to get crazier. This is strong as a garlic sandwich. That's how we would say that out in West Texas. Invite someone. This is, I'm going to, we're going to keep hammering you second service because first service is pulling their weight. There was 100 and almost 200 people in there this morning. You know someone, just in all seriousness, and, and this is no pressure, no judgment, nothing like that at all, but I do want to encourage you. You know someone in your life that needs Jesus, that needs the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. What a better way than to just simply invite them to come with you to church next Sunday. Just come to church with us. Maybe we go have lunch afterwards. Go watch the Cowboys destroy the Giants today. Amen? All right. Seriously, though, you, you absolutely, 
you absolutely can be and will be used by God. It just takes a step of obedience to invite. That's it. I hope you'll consider it. Pray with us. Father, thank you for another just challenging and powerful time here in the New Testament. And uh, thank you for Jude's words and the encouragement that we find, the challenge that we find. And I'm, uh, I am very encouraged, God, just by our, by our freedom that we have, that we enjoy here, to spend the time defining and talking about how to be devoted to the faith here. Lord, when we really consider our devotion to the faith on the east side of Fort Worth in comparison to other parts of the world, we, we realize pretty quickly how well off we are. And... Uh, we certainly pray for other brothers and sisters in Christ and other parts of the world that are, are legitimately dying for the witness of Christ right now. And I pray that that would inspire us and embolden us just to take small steps of obedience um, because really in, in light of, of what is happening in other parts of the world, it's all relatively pretty small. Mm. Um, thank you for the work that you're doing through the, the Fearless series and literally charging the gates of hell. And, and tearing down strongholds of lies and deception that the enemy has spread, particularly among women who have been hurt. I pray that the church, especially City on a Hill, would, would continue to become more and more the safest place on earth to let go of that stuff and to see the gospel break those chains. We know that you're working, Lord, and we're grateful for it. We're thankful for that, and uh, we pray that you continue to use us in every small possible way that you can. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go to Walmart and get your pair of black jeans for 10 bucks. But if you Oof. wear if you wear 32, 32, don't get them because I'm going to go get another pair. You get a pair. You get a pair. We all. That I was just you. a way of me telling you that I have a 32 waist. <laughs>